I, um, what I wanted to try and uh, inculcate was just a sense of like, oh wait, what's going to happen? And obviously the theme I'm preaching on in light of the lessons we just heard is, is the second coming. Uh, and what I want to offer to you is that we forget the many, many injunctions in the scriptures to be expectantly waiting for the Lord to come back. So take that sort of momentary sort of feeling, whatever you felt, whether it was just sort of uncertainty or confusion or whatever when I left, um, and multiply that by like a hundred, and that's sort of something about the sort of ready spirit that God invites us, uh, actually asks us to have uh, as Christians, because we are waiting for the coming of the Lord again. As we round the home stretch of the church year, right, we're kind of wrapping up the church year. Advent is on the horizon. Of course, the Christmas stuff has already been in the stores for months. Um, we look sort of to the, the very final part of the story of Christ, and it's actually the part which hasn't happened yet, right? Everything else in the church year, we're commemorating things that have already happened, right? Christmas, we remember his birth. Easter, we remember his resurrection. But this part of the year, we remember we're actually looking ahead to something that is still to come. It actually really um, bothers me uh, how much sort of misinformation and sort of uh, charlatanism surrounds the topic of the second coming, right? There's always some doomsayer on the news or some popular novel or something kind of making this big hullabaloo and kind of making it seem like it, this part of the Christian message is weird and esoteric and odd. Um, and certainly there are some very strong and strange images in the book of Revelation, um, which we'll be unpacking in, to, to do a momentary plug, uh, in the adult ed class, which we will be doing on Thursday nights through Advent, looking into all these matters of Revelation and end times things. So I'm not going to, don't worry, Lincoln, I'm not going to spoil uh, the content we have uh, prepared to teach there. I want to give just kind of a big picture uh, look at, at what we mean when we talk about the second coming of Christ. Um, the big picture is simply this. Uh, our Lord Jesus, as we know, is right now sitting in the invisible places at the right hand of the Father. That's where he is. He doesn't not exist. He exists. That's, he is he is not was risen. He is risen. He's there in the invisible places with God the Father. And as we confess every Sunday in the creed, right? I love the creed because it helps us never lose sight of this fact. He will come again, finish with me if you can, in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We say those words all the time, right? But I think we sometimes miss um, the epicness of what we mean when we're describing that. And the verses, the lessons we had uh, today sort of bring back in the epic picture. This creedal synthesis of the scriptures, I want to kind of walk through it a little bit. He will come again in glory. And again, this stands in very, it's intentionally juxtaposed in, with nearness to our celebration of Christmas. That the first time Jesus came, it was not with much glory. Yes, the shepherds saw angels singing, um, but outside of that, it was like a pretty visibly insignificant event. Like only a handful of people even knew when God himself came to earth the first time. But the second time, it won't be like that. It will actually have a lot of glory and, and everyone will know. It will be triumphant, unlike 2,000 years ago. As Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, and actually I encourage you to kind of have that 1 Thessalonians reading open in your bulletin, because I'm going to be referencing a handful of verses in it this morning. As Paul tells us in, in verse 16 of chapter 4, when the Lord comes the second time, he will descend from heaven 
with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So whereas the first time only a few people even knew about it, the second time, and when we think of descend from heaven, the danger of thinking kind of literally that he would just sort of drop down from the sky and only if you, you know, I think actually probably uh, some of you would have a, a better sense of the actual miles, but if something happened in the sky, you could maybe see it from like a 50-mile radius. This isn't quite like, it's not like that. It's not like this Jesus is going to come back and if you're not in that 50-mile radius, you'll just miss it. When it says come back from the heavens, it's sort of like all of, I mean, the world's about to be remade. All of space-time, sort of like, you will, we will all be able to see when the Lord descends. Everyone on earth will all see at the same time, oh my gosh, what is this? And the Christians will know exactly what it is and who are waiting for our Lord. And those who didn't know what it is, it's going to be a very... I mean, I have a great understatement to say it's going to be a surprising day, right? I mean, Amos says that the amount of terror that day will invoke means that we should even be wary about hoping for the day of the Lord, right? He says the day of the Lord, as Jimmy read so well, is darkness. I mean, this is going to be like, it's the, melt, it's the cauldron of all of uh, history. It's going to be very intense. Um, the first time he came with a mission uh, to sacrifice himself and save the whole world, the second time he comes, it will to be to judge the world. And he isn't coming um, to judge souls. He's coming to judge all of us human beings who are body and soul, right? As Paul writes um, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We're to be judged on the last day for what we've done in our bodies. And so since we're going to be judged for what we've done in our bodies, like meaning what we've done in this mortal life, um, we need to be judged in our bodies. And that's why where the resurrection of the dead and the second coming of our Lord, these are simultaneous events, that, that trumpet that Paul writes about, I just think about sort of, there's some angel right now with a trumpet, like ready to blow it, like waiting, that the trumpet will sound, and, and as the scriptures elsewhere speak, and then the dead will rise. So the second coming of the Lord is sort of initiates the resurrection of the dead so that we can all be in our immortal bodies, um, not just the Christians, as it says in Acts, the just and the unjust will all be raised, we're all going to be raised, do you see where we kind of, how epic this is already? Like, we're just getting started. And this is crazy, right? I mean, it's wild. This is not some sort of normal humdrum, like, oh, yeah, and then I paid a toll and something happened. Like, like, this is the remaking of the universe. It's hard to imagine these things. If you ever see any of the folk art that's created, trying to picture some of these end times revelation scenes, they look kind of wacko, right? Like souls going up in a beam of light to things. Like, it's really hard to picture because these things are, are so on the edge of our imaginations. And yet the scripture has revealed that this is what's going to happen. This is the case. So Jesus is going to come back a second time. We're all going to be raised, but of course, if you're already alive, you don't need to be raised in the same way. And so one of the things Paul um, teaches twice, not only here in 1 Thessalonians, but also in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that the dead will be raised. And those of us who are alive, when the Lord comes back, it could be us, People ask me sometimes, you know, when do you think the second coming is going to be? And I say, it's either going to be in about 20 minutes or 500 years. 
Right? Like I think it, it, we, we need to live like it's any moment and not be doing this sort of like, oh, in 10 years' time, we're going to have another st- alignment of the stars. I mean, all these silly things that get brought in. So he's coming to judge not just the dead, but the living, all human beings. So in that strange, wild recreation, second coming moment, the dead will be restored to an immortal body, and we who are living will, and again, how to picture this, it's on the edge of imagination, but we will have our mortal bodies transformed into an immortal body. It's not like the living will have to somehow sort of be killed and raised, like we'll sort of undergo this sort of strange, to use the language of Calvin and Hobbes, uh, transmorgification. Um, Paul into Corinthians would say, uh, I don't have it here, that we, mortality will be swallowed up with immortality, that we'll be overclothed with our immortal existence. So again, I mean, this is epic, epic stuff. Um, when Jesus comes back, everything gets changed. The dead will rise, we will have our state altered into an immortal state. Um, Oh yeah, here we go. And, uh, and then we will come before his presence for judgment. Um, when Jesus ascended into heaven, like, one of the main reasons he did that was to communicate that right now we're not going to see him anymore. Right? There's all these resurrection appearances. After he's risen from the dead, he appears, as it lists in 1 Corinthians 15, he appears to um, <coughs> the women at the tomb and to the people on the road to Emmaus, and to the 12, or the 11 at that point, in the upper room. And then it says to 500. So Jesus is appearing in this resurrected form to communicate the gospel that death has been conquered. But then in the ascension, that is sort of a a symbolic gesture which says, don't be expecting visible appearances for a while until I come again. That's why the ascension happens. It's sort of like Christ comes to earth, goes down to the grave, is raised again, and then ascends... And so we don't see him, but that, the ascension is the sort of the cue the angels remember in the book of Acts say, as you saw him go, you'll see him come. Like that's sort of the, the last sort of um, teaser trailer, as it were, of Jesus is going to come back from heaven. He's going to be visible one more time. And when he comes, it won't be sort of transient, like his ministry you know, only lasted on earth 33 years. Um, it, it'll be forever. Like everything's going to be permanent the next time. The whole universe will be remade. Our bodies get remade. All creation gets remade. Um, and this epic day that is a some set time in the future, as Christians, we should be uh, watching for it. We should be ready for it, uh, as it as it comes nearer. The, um, the scriptures speak about sort of the, the tenor of our watching, like in what spirit should we be waiting? And I think... The answers are sort of paradoxical. There's sort of two different things the scripture puts forward as for what, how, we, how we're supposed to be waiting and what, in what way we're supposed to be thinking about this epic second coming of our Lord. And actually, both are contained in our lessons this morning. Um, so Paul says, right, at the end of this passage in Thessalonians, he says, remind everybody of this fairly regularly to be encouraged by it. So something about the specter, this looming second coming, is a source of encouragement. Um, which is a bit, I think, strange at first. Like, wait, wait, what's encouraging about that? But I want to offer sort of two things, I think, that are encouraging. Uh, in the first place, and, and really this is what prompts Paul to write in Thessalonians. When we look at kind of the whole chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, why is the Holy Spirit guiding Paul to speak about this particular issue right here? He's offering consolation to Christians who have had friends and family die. 
Right? He's talking about like, there's, I think when we, try and recon- when we read Paul's letters, it's a, a, a speculative work, but we can try and look at what situation, in terms of what the Spirit's leading him to say, what situation, what, what, is it, what questions are those answers to? What situation was happening in the church of Thessalonica that Paul was led to address it this way? And it's clear when we look at chapter 4, sometimes it's harder to reconstruct, sometimes easier. But in this case, it appears the Thessalonians are sort of worrying, like, okay, those who've died, like, what happened to them? And what's going to happen to us? And are we in, like, two different trajectories now? And there was this kind of confusion. And what, Paul te- what the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to teach is um, to be encouraged that the dead are with the Lord. And they will be raised when the Lord comes back and will be transformed and that it's all together that there's sort of a real unity between the living and the dead in the household of God. And we don't need to worry about them. And I think that's the first encouragement that they aren't sort of nowhere or cease to exist, that they are with the Lord right now. And now, in some ways, that's a commonplace teaching in the, in the church. You know, that, oh yeah, of course, like we say at every funeral, right? Like he's, he's with the Lord. Um, this is actually revealed religion. This is not intuitive. Like when we look at ancient religions, no one ever kind of came up with ideas like this. This is what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to reveal that, oh yeah, like the dead don't just disappear. Like in the Old Testament, before the full revelation of God was here, there was this kind of sense of, well, the body goes into the ground, I guess the soul just kind of disappears somewhere. Um, and, and, and no, actually, in Jesus we now know that the souls of the dead are with, are with Jesus. Um, yeah. which, is, um, which is a real comfort when we face the prospect of a Christian dying um, as many of you have experienced the, the loss that we brace for is mostly for our own sense of loss uh, if the person's a Christian they give us great comfort that they're actually I mean, we say glibly going to a better place but um, when understood rightly that's great theology that they actually for the person dying it's actually a for the, sorry, I should say for the Christian dying, uh, it's a joy to go see the Lord face to face. It's good. It's actually better. So that's the first encouragement is for the, Christ, the beloved Christian dead. The second encouragement is, is, for, our, is for ourselves. Um, you know, he says, Paul says at the end of verse 17, we will always be with the Lord. That sort of mapping again that like, because the next life, the life after death, is so, there's so much unknown about it, like there's not sort of, even the scriptures reveal such fragmentary pictures of what it will be like, the one thing we know for sure is it's continuous with this life in that we are with God and in God as Christians. That it's not like, oh yeah, now we live in God and we die, well, where does our soul go? Who knows? It's no, no. Death, I mean, that's why the New Testament refers to death as sleep, because in contrast to the reality of the fact we are always with the Lord, um, it is no more a change to us than, than sleep is. It's a very small thing in a way. So there's encouragement for those whom we've lost and, and for ourselves. I love, um, I think, corroborating the same teaching. You know, the scripture always speaks with one voice. Uh, Psalm 139, one of, the, uh, one, of the most, one of the most wonderful psalms. Um, if I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there too. <laughs> right? Like even when we go to the grave, God is with us. So the source of the second, uh, so um, when we look ahead to the second coming, I think the first thing the scripture says in terms of like how we should look ahead is with encouragement, with readiness. Like, okay, yeah, that would be good to see the Lord face to face. There's something positive about it. And then the, the sort of twin truth is that there's also something fearsome about it. Our Lord's presence when he comes is a wonderful thing and, and a, 
a terrible thing in the old sense of that word, inducing of terror. Because as the scriptures say many places, um, our lives will be laid bare. Jesus says, every idle word we've spoken, we'll have to give account for. Everything we've ever thought or done in this life will be brought before his judgment seat. I think this is what Jesus himself is describing in the parable of the ten bridesmaids, sometimes translated ten virgins, that we heard about uh, in the gospel this morning. That on the great day of judgment, sort of in this parabolic figure, five of those who were waiting for the Lord were found to be adequately prepared, and five were not. And I think it's an important detail that we're talking kind of in-house here. This, This isn't sort of random people. These are people waiting for the Lord. Christians. And five were five uh, received favorable judgment, as it were, and five received unfavorable judgment. And here we see sort of the same teaching as our Lord gives in the parable of the sheep and the goats, right? That there will be some who will be surprised that they are found among the goats, that there's this division between sheep and goat. That when our lives are weighed, um, some are found wanting and some are welcomed into paradise. Um, I think it's actually... A, writes that this parable should set even the Christian who has all the promises of God a little bit on edge. Like Jesus' teaching is pretty apocalyptic and intense on this point. The parable is about those who, who I think, um, oh, and I think, I think it's really actually significant. I, in preparation for this sermon, for like two weeks I've been thinking about what is the oil? Like if, if the sort of the thing of the parable is... Um, is, well, the ones who had enough oil are the ones who sort of make it in paradise. That's pretty important, what the oil is. And so I've been praying, like, Lord, please show me. And I've been reading these commentaries, and, and I, couldn't, I, not, I, didn't, I couldn't land on anything. And then the Holy Spirit kind of, I, I believe, opened my, my eyes to the fact that Jesus is very intentional not to say what the oil is. Because if it was just some particular deed, well, we would then automatically try and become like Pharisees and sort of say, oh, well, I'll do that one deed, and now I know that I'm getting into heaven. And that's different than being in relationship with the living God. So I think Jesus actually intentionally doesn't say what the oil is. I think the oil stands for the whole picture of a life lived in Christ Jesus. A life well-pleasing to Christ, a life replete with the deeds of a Christian, which we are to pursue if we want to be judged among those who are welcomed into the, the wedding feast. And I want to be really careful here because I do think Jesus is teaching and introducing a certain amount of uncertainty with regards to our eternal destination in terms of our own individual lives. That we don't know with certainty that we will ultimately end up being among those who are welcomed or those who are the, the door is shut on. We don't know if we will remain faithful to the end of our lives. Um, because I think it's one of the sort of enemies of true Christianity to think that, oh, to be a Christian means there's these five things, you know, I have faith, I have baptism, I've done some good things, I've not done, you know, and and I've checked my boxes and now I'm in. Like this sort of settled, resolved, past fact. I think salvation is always something that the Lord is inviting us into in the present. It's never something we can say, oh, I did it in the past, I can sit on my laurels. Even the great sacrament of baptism is not some, oh, now don't worry about it, like get out of jail free card. Salvation's always worked out in the present. I think these parables Jesus is giving us to lean into the present, to continue to seek salvation 
from Jesus and, and not rest on the past. That's why he ends with the main, this exhortation. Keep watch, therefore. Be vigilant. Be attentive. Um, that's different than saying, check off these boxes and don't worry about it. Right? He's saying, be attentive. Be ready at all times to meet your judge. So the fact that Jesus is coming back, it should rightly keep us on our toes as Christians. It should keep us, yeah, from just falling back on what we have done in the past. Now, here I want to be really careful. I, I think so often the, the devil wants to take truth and have it sort of exaggerated one way or the other. So in the same way, I think we can be exaggerated in sort of resting on our laurels. I'm, please hear me. I'm not saying we should be anxious about salvation. Caution and watchfulness are not anxiety. Anxiety would be the, the, the enemy's way of overinflating what Jesus is teaching. Because we know the character of Jesus. We know he's always merciful. Like you, you can't read more than a page and a half in Scripture and not see some assertion of the long suffering, patient, compassion, compassionate tenderness of God shown forth most clearly in Christ Jesus, dying on the cross for us. Like, you can't get past the mercy and the love of God. That's where our hope lies. That's why, as Christians, we're hopeful of favorable judgment. That we come before the throne not like, okay, what's going to happen? Roll the dice. It's like, no, Lord, you are merciful. And you've forgiven me in Christ Jesus. And you've given me the grace of baptism. And, and you've given me every grace. And so I, I, can't, I, I personally am coming before judgment despite so much wasted and sinful in my life hopeful of favorable judgment because I know the character of the judge. But it's different than sort of some lockstep checkbox certainty. Do you see the distinction? Um, so I, I really want to say you can err in either way, over Sunday or anxiety, to be anxious about salvation. Like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be saved. I don't know. That's to miss the point again. That's, to over, that's, that's different than just caution and watchfulness and being on your toes and attentive. Those things are Christian. A- anxiety about salvation is not Christian. God, I think in these lessons we heard today, which I encourage you to reflect on this week, is uh, urging us to be cautious about our lives, to be um, living in light of the fact that every moment past will come before the judgment seat of God. When he, and that day when we'll be judged is when Jesus comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. So uh, I pray that you would ask God for grace to stay more awake, to be more careful, more watchful as we await uh, his second coming. And as we remember that fact, we're going to hear a lot of lessons in these next couple of weeks um, about the second coming of Christ. So I wanted to kind of paint this picture as a general picture in which the next few weeks will, will fall in. So um, let me pray a prayer of thanks, thanksgiving to God for these things. Father, thank you for revealing through your Holy Spirit, through your servant Paul, what is to come, that we are not left only with what you have done in the past, although we are infinitely grateful for the sacrifice of your son, but that you revealed the ending. We know where this whole story is going, and we know that you will send your son to come back one more time to establish his kingdom permanently uh, for the, in the new heavens and in the new earth, the recreation of the whole world. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us equal measure of joy and encouragement at this prospect and caution and even holy fear that you would make us all more ready to come before your Son for judgment and that you would save us from either extreme of anxiety 
because we, it is not uncertain. You have shown us the certainty of your character. And I pray you'd also save us from, um, from not being watchful, from being unprepared for that day, like the five unwise bridesmaids. I pray that you would guide us into this uh, holy caution as we approach uh, this Advent season and as we remember the coming of your Son. Amen.